Well, open your Bibles then to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. As we return again, I think it's been six weeks or more since we were in our studies in Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, this is the third part of a three-part message. The first two parts were six weeks ago, so we'll have to take a little time to review, I think, and get get a running start here at the final section. But we are looking at verses 11 through 22, the second chapter of Ephesians. Beloved, these are challenging days for our country, to be sure. As was mentioned earlier in the service, the devastation of hurricanes across the southern part of our United States, producing untold misery and suffering, the tally of which is yet to be finalized. There are also many, many wildfires that are raging up in the Pacific Northwest and and uh, east of there, even into Montana, that are also destroying many hundreds of thousands of acres of, uh, of timberland. So these are really difficult times right now in our country, and you add to that the social and political climate in, in which we find ourselves, and certainly the ethnic and racial tensions that are brewing, and uh, in some cases I think being stoked for political gain, and I think we are at the boiling point. And we have a recipe for disaster. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is a fire suppression system. It is a fire suppression system for the flames of ethnic tensions and hostilities, and they cannot long survive in that environment. That was true, certainly, in the ancient world between Jew and Gentile, and it is even true today. It is the only hope we have for this nation, is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have been chosen of God to not only believe the gospel, but to speak of this truth to our friends, to our family members, to our neighbors and co-workers, to our schoolmates. We have the light of the truth of the Word of God, and it's incumbent upon us to speak it and to live it, for the world desperately needs to hear it. The Apostle Paul was absolutely at the forefront of gospel preaching, and in particular, he was at the forefront of explaining to the new converts how Uh, Ethnic unity within the church of Jesus Christ was a necessary implication of the gospel. For people drawn from every tribe, tongue, and nation can uh, live together and must live together in a loving unity. That theme of unity within the body of Christ occupies, as we noted about six weeks ago, a significant portion of the writings of the Apostle Paul. Every time he addresses a church... He eventually gets to this topic of Jew and Gentile together living in one body, in love with Christ and consequently in love with one another, and serving Christ and consequently serving one another. And that is the focus of this passage here in verses 11 through 22. And in many ways, it's sort of the heart of this epistle. And, uh, and what goes on after this will be building upon this amazing truth 
of what God has accomplished in reconciling Jew and Gentile together, both one to another in Christ and then vertically to God himself. So as we look at the passage, uh, we, we see Paul shows us how Christ permanently overcomes ethnic tensions. That's important. He permanently overcomes ethnic tensions through the gospel of grace. It's important for us because we are part of the battle and we need to battle against any of those barriers that might possibly arise within our own fellowship here. And we should never think ourselves immune to the temptations of these sorts of things, to look poorly on one another based on the silliness of the accident of one's birth. So, in review... We look first at verses 11 through 12, the Gentiles' former plight. Let me read the text. In fact, I'm going to read the whole 11 to 22, and then we'll return. Paul says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, were called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away. And peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. May God bless the reading of his word. First, Paul points out the former plight of the Gentiles here in verses 11 and 12. He dismisses rather quickly here in verse 11 with the the whole issue of circumcision, which had been such a long-standing barrier. That that surgery, that, that physical mark given to Abraham as the sign of the covenant with God had become this nearly insurmountable barrier that separated the Jewish people from the rest of the world. And it had become a source of irritation for the Gentiles and a source of false pride for the Jewish people. And Paul now recognizing that in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, doesn't matter whether you had the surgery or not, it does not commend one to God. 
And so he dispenses with all of that and then deals here with the reality of the Gentiles by circumstance of their birth. That is, that they have been in the providence of God born outside of Israel. And the fact that they have been born outside of Israel has set them historically at a significant theological disadvantage. Notice it there in verse 12. He lists five ways that the, that the Gentile world has been disadvantaged. He's excluded, he says, from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Five ways, four of which relate directly to their lack of access to the Scriptures. That it is to the Jewish nation that God entrusted the oracles of God. And so the Gentile world, being separate from and, and outside of, had no access to this reality and thus ultimately had no real good access to God. And Paul wants them to remember that reality because it's important to remember where you're from when you see how God has changed you. It's hard to look down on other people when you remember where you're from, that you have nothing to boast in yourself. And so Paul, in, in focusing on the unity of Jew and Gentile together, wants to remind these Gentiles, you have nothing to brag about here either. In fact, you are completely disadvantaged had not God intervened on your behalf through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This, he says, remember, verse 11, remember, formerly, this is who you are. This was your situation in life. And all of that changed. And all of that changed, verse 13, by God's decisive intervention. But now, this is who you formerly were. This is the condition in which you formerly existed. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In other words, God has decisively and dramatically intervened on behalf of the Gentile world to draw them near to himself. Looking around this room, that's mostly us. That's us. We cut off from God. Our peoples separated in darkness and ignorance, without hope in the world. But now, in Christ, we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And what makes this so, so uh, intervention so dramatic is that it occurs outside of the nation of Israel. Prior to this, a, a, a Gentile who truly longed to know the God of this world, the, uh, the, excuse me, the God of creation, could, could come to him through the vehicle of Israel. One had to, had to draw near, but could only draw so near. And then there were barriers that still kept one away. But now, in Christ, that has all been flattened. That has all been obliterated. It has been knocked low. The veil of the temple, as it were, has been ripped from top to bottom. And the Holy of Holies has been thrown open, not just to the Jewish people, but to us as well. We did not become... In, in giving our lives to Christ, we did not become Israel. We did not become Jewish, and we don't become a new Israel. In other words, God creates something new here, a new community, 
A community that transcends the ancient boundaries. That, that leapfrogs Israel, as it were. And it's a, it's a new community that now places Jew and Gentile in this period of human history together on equal footing with equal access to God. And that's Paul's exact point over there in verse 18 where you see he says, through him we have our access in one spirit to the Father. Now how did God bring near those who were far off? The answer is by our participation through our union with Christ in his sacrificial death. That which Paul has elaborated back here in chapter 1, a union that was determined by the Father according to his sovereign good pleasure, verse 4, chapter 1, lovingly determined by God when he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, and it was brought about in space and time, according to verse 13 of chapter 1, when we believed the gospel, the good news, when we placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We who are far off have been brought near. Now how does the death of Christ bring the Gentiles near? That's the question. How does the death of Christ bring the Gentiles near? And Paul addresses that question for us next here in verses 14 through 18 with Christ's amazing accomplishment. He begins, as we said, in verses 11 and following, uh, focusing on the plight of the Gentiles and how, he is, how God has intervened decisively here. But now, beginning in verse 14, Paul turns exclusively to the work of Christ. It is all about Christ. Notice where Paul says here that we have been brought near, verse uh, 13, and we have been brought near because, verse 14, notice it begins for, you could substitute because, we have been brought near because he himself, that is Christ, is our peace, verse 14. He is our peace, Christ himself. In other words, by his death, he, he has brought the believing Jew and Gentile together as one. He has overcome the ancient hostilities, the divided humanity, that which had been separated for millennia, and he has formed the two into one new people of God, one new group. For he himself, verse 14, is our peace who made both groups into one. He made them into one. We didn't become Israel, and the Jewish people did not lose their Jewishness and become Gentiles. He created something that transcends both Jew and Gentile, the church of Jesus Christ. And how did he do it? How did he do it? How did he, he break down this barrier, verse 14, this dividing wall that had separated people since antiquity? How did he do it? He did it, at verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. By abolishing in his flesh, flesh the enmity, that which had created the hostility, he abolished in his flesh, that is, by his crucifixion. And we noted last or weeks ago the word abolish here, kartagesis, it means to make ineffective or to make inoperative or to make powerless. In other words, by his crucifixion, he made ineffective the barrier that had separated Jew and Gentile. He made inoperative the barrier that had separated Jew and Gentile. He made powerless 
the barrier that had separated Jew and Gentile. And what was that barrier? Paul tells us right here, the, the enmity or the barrier is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. In other words, it is the, it is the Mosaic law. It is the Mosaic law as expressed in its detailed holiness code. In other words, to be a Jew meant one followed the holiness code laid out there in Leviticus, and it was pretty detailed, and it, and it rendered its purpose of separating off Israel for a time. By what they ate, by where they worshipped, by how they worshipped, by how they dressed, by how they conducted themselves in community together. It touched every single aspect of life, right down to the most intimate levels of bodily functions. It touched them all. And it represented this barrier that, that separated the two and became ultimately the source of hostility between them. And Christ rendered that ineffective. In other words, that that he, through his death, fulfilled the law and its intention, as illustrated in all of these details, rendering it no longer necessary or effective. Again, he didn't turn Jews into Gentiles. He didn't turn Gentiles into Jews. He created an entirely new class of humanity. Look at the end of verse 15. So that in himself, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. You see this over and over again. There were two, there's now one. There were two, they were separated, they were held apart, and they, were, they had developed a hostility that put them at each other's throats. That has all now been wiped away. They have been brought near. They have been, they have been rendered as one new humanity through the coming of the new covenant, who Jesus himself brought through his flesh. He established the two into one new man, establishing, notice the end of verse 15, peace. In other words, it didn't end just that he reconciled people together. His purpose actually goes beyond merely the abolishing of the law that, that had created this separation, but, but it moves forward and positively to the establishing of peace. He created peace. He brought peace horizontally between Jew and Gentile, and he brings peace vertically, verse 16, between man and God. Then he might reconcile them, verse 16, both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. Just as the Mosaic law was the source of the enmity between Jew and Gentile, so too the Mosaic law, the holiness code, was tightly bound to the enmity between God and man. Mankind, the Gentile world in particular, living under the power of the world, the flesh, and the devil, when it encounters the holiness of God incorporated in the Mosaic law, it inevitably produced the hostility of God towards their sin. So when Christ died on that cross, he set that law aside, he fulfilled it, and in doing so, he created this new humanity and, and he removed the legal case against humanity codified in the law. In other words, 
In effect, Christ's death killed God's hostility towards you and I. When Jesus died, he killed the hostility of God towards you and I. And the result of that is the new covenant blessing of peace. The new covenant blessing of peace. Notice again, this peace is, is, is available on an equal basis. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far away. That would be the Gentiles. And peace to those who were near. That would be the Jewish people. For through him, that is Christ, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. No more favoritism. No one has an inside track. Now, Jew and Gentile, no priority any longer in terms of access to the Father. You don't come through Judaism, but together as a one new man, this new entity, this new humanity, together enjoys unhindered access to the Spirit of God. That, my friends, is an amazing, an amazing accomplishment. The Gentiles' former plight, God's decisive intervention, Christ's amazing accomplishment. And then finally, for this morning, God's new temple. God's new temple. The tangible result of peace is the growth of the church. The tangible result of peace is the growth of the church. The church does not grow where there is no peace among the people. And Paul expresses this reality, this growth of the church in peace, and he does it through three metaphors. He chooses three separate metaphors, two of which he'll introduce and then sort of move beyond rather quickly, and the third he'll draw out. That third metaphor is is the metaphor of the temple of God, and that will be his focus. But all of this, these three metaphors here in verses 19 through 22, so it's the, it's the uh, citizens of God's kingdom, it's the household of God, and it's the, it's the temple itself, the building blocks in the temple. These, these three metaphors draw out really the implications of what he has taught. And so let's take a look at it here, verse 19. So then, that's a summary statement. So then, in light of all that has been accomplished... This is where you were, Gentiles. This is, this is how you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. The new humanity has been created. Peace has been established horizontally and vertically between each other and, and between you and God. In light of all of that, access now in one spirit to the Father as a result of all of that. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. In other words, you are citizens of God's kingdom. That's the first metaphor he introduces. You are citizens of God's kingdom. This is a a sharp contrast, right? Look back in verse 12. Verse 12, it was their their theological disadvantage. They were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. They They were not citizens. They were outside. Now they have been made citizens. You are no longer strangers and aliens. You once were strangers, aliens. Now you are fellow citizens with the saints. 
In other words, you are citizens of God's kingdom. You are members of God's new society. These are interesting terms here, these terms stranger and alien. Commentators are a little uh, divided on all of this, whether they actually represent two different um, statuses or whether they're just basically two overlapping words to express the same concept. That's more where I'm inclined to see. But, it's, but essentially what he is talking about is those who are temporarily living in the land. Temporarily living in the land. Now, the first may be a little more temporary than the second. To be a stranger, perhaps, is to be a little more temporary, as it were, than to be an alien or a resident alien. But the idea is that you're not citizens. That is, that this is not your home. This is not where you belong. And, um, and even more so than in our world, to, to be a, a stranger or to be an alien, to, to, or instead of reverse, to, to be... To be outside of the privileges of citizenship was a very big deal. It was dramatically different to be a citizen in the ancient world, a citizen usually of a particular city, than to be a stranger, to be an alien. The status of non-citizenship was a sort of a, of a dangerous place to be. And they were once that way, Paul says. You were once without hope. Because you were excluded from Israel. You weren't a citizen of the nation of Israel, and you're not a citizen of Israel's kingdom. But now you are members of a, of a new humanity, right? You are no longer that way, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are, you are members of a new humanity. You are, you are citizens together with Israel in God's new coming kingdom. Your status is no more the disadvantaged. You are now on equal footing, citizens of the kingdom. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary, uh, wrote in, in uh, thinking on these things, he said, quote, oh, We no longer live on a passport, but we really have our birth certificates. We really do belong. I thought that was a good way to say it. We are no longer living on a passport, we now have our birth certificates. We are citizens of God's coming kingdom. We really do belong. Paul goes beyond that, and he uses another metaphor here. And he says we are of God's household, verse 19. All right, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So he introduces now, he moves from citizenship over to uh, being members of a household. It's a, it's a metaphor of a family. In other words, you are, you are now part of God's family. You are part of God's household. When you introduce this idea of a household, you introduce the idea of intimacy, of intimacy, of the, of the familiarity and the intimacy of familiar bonds, right? There is nothing like the, the bonds between uh, family members with brothers and sisters and parents and, and siblings and so forth. There is just that closeness that exists. And Paul says, you who were once far away have now come into God's family. You have been made children of the living God, and so you are moving into this very secure place. You're not just a citizen, and that's wonderful. You are now a member of the family. We are taking you in. And how do you become a member of the family again? It's by adoption. Right, so look back at chapter 1, 
In verse 5, he predestined us in love to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In other words, Christ's sonship has been shared with us through adoption. God has brought us into his family and placed us in a place of intimacy that he shares with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know now the the blessings of, of our spiritual family. And these blessings are way closer even than the, than the blessings of physical family. And in fact, uh, physical family, Jesus tells us over in uh, Matthew 19, that um, the result of following him can actually bring division within the human family, within the blood family, when one gives their allegiance to Christ and the rest of the family is opposed. It does separate relationships. And so there over in Matthew 19 and verse 29 where the disciples are concerned about this and they say we've given up everything to follow you, what's going to be to us? Jesus says you will have family, fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, far in greater abundance and at a more intimate level than you ever experienced in your best days in the human family. We are brought together into the family of God. And it is this familial relationship, beloved, that, that, that affects how we interact with each other here. Your brothers and sisters together in the family of God. If you are a child of God this morning, look around. These are your brothers. These are your sisters. And in fact, the New Testament uses that terminology, often grouping it together in the term brethren. Brethren. Now, it's interesting to, to note this, I think. You can see in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and in verses 1 and 2 where Paul is instructing Timothy on, on uh, relationships within the church and, and how he is to respond to various people within the church. And notice what he says. He says, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. Uh, to the younger men as brothers the older women as mothers, and the younger sisters, uh, younger women as sisters in all purity. So Paul says within the church that you are to think of and to address one another as you would within a normal human family. The older men of the church are your fathers. You do address them with a the kind of respect that is reserved for a father. Younger men, we are, we are brothers, and, uh, and so you can think of each other that way, and, and the older women, of course, as a mother, and then younger women, uh, gentlemen, she is either your sister or she is your wife, okay? You get that? So basically, you have two approaches to the ladies of the church, those of you who are unmarried. She is either your sister in Christ or she's your wife. She goes from one to the other uh, when I marry you and not before, Okay, so that's how that all divides. Now, being, the, being in the status of, of uh, the household of God carries with it the loving care and concern of a heavenly father for his children. An earthly father is the illustration of, of this reality. When an earthly father cares for his child, and Jesus says that, he says, you know, which... Which one of you, when your son, you know, asks for a loaf of bread, you're not going to give him a rock? I mean, that's not how human fathers deal with their children. They deal with them tenderly. They provide for them. They care for them. If your human father will do that, how much more will your heavenly father care for you who are his adopted children? 
He didn't get stuck with you. He chose you, and he brought you into his family, and he has committed himself to care for you. And, and so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 and 32, he says, you know, don't be worried about your life as to what you will eat or drink or, or clothe your bodies with. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And implicit in the fact that he knows is that he will provide what you need. There is that intimacy of the household of God. And this is wonderful. Citizens of the kingdom of God, members of the household of God, And yet, wonderful as these are, notice that Paul, it's one verse, verse 19, he doesn't really develop these. Instead, he he speeds on to to the the big idea that he really wants to get after, and that is that that we become building blocks in God's temple, verses 20 to 22. We become building blocks in God's temple. He switches metaphors here. He switches metaphors from family now to architecture. He goes to the metaphor of architecture. And, uh, and basically what he does is he identifies the church here as a building that is under construction. A building under construction. And then he moves that image forward later by identifying that building as the very temple of God. Notice he says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, when he introduces this metaphor of a building, he points backwards in time here. In verse 20, he says, having been built, past tense, having been built. You have been built. When? When were we built? on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets? Answer, back to chapter 1 and verse 13, where he says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Past tense. When you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, wherever that was, for some of you many, many, many decades ago, for others of you much more recent than that, When you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you were added to the building. The building is still under construction. Your present status as a a citizen of the kingdom, your, your present place at the table in the household of God, are the result of this past tense activity of you being built upon the foundation here that Paul identifies as the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In other words, when you believed, something dramatic happened to you. You became a citizen. You became a member of the household. And you became a building block in the building of God. Built on the foundation, verse 20, of the apostles and the prophets. All right, question. Who are these guys? Who are these apostles and prophets, and what foundation did they lay? Question. Who are they, and what foundation did they lay? And you might think, well, those are obvious questions. And um, yeah, they are, but they have not produced 
a uniform answer today. There is confusion in the evangelical church today with regard to what exactly this is all about. The simple answer to the question of who are these apostles and prophets and what is the foundation that they laid is that, that, they, are, that they are unique groups of men engaged in a common task of laying the foundation for God's church and by acting as his spokesman and emissaries. That is inherent in the word apostle itself. Now this reference here to the apostles and prophets appears interestingly three times in Paul's letter to the church at at Ephesus, all basically densely packed around this section. We see apostles and prophets used three times, and it's used three times in close proximity here. Beginning in verse 20, right? It been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Then let your eyes drop down to chapter 3 and verse 5, where there it says, uh, well, we'll pick it up at the end of verse 4, my insight into the mystery of Christ, <clears throat> which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And then over to verse 11 of chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So three times we see the reference to apostles and prophets always in that order. Apostles first, then prophets. Not prophets and apostles, apostles and prophets. They are the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20. They are the ones to whom Christ revealed the mystery of the one new man, Jew and Gentile together, chapter 3, verse 5, and chapter 4, verse 11. They are a group of gifted men that God gave to his church for its maturing. So therefore, on, on that basis, we can draw some conclusions. One conclusion that we can draw is that this is not a reference to New Testament apostles and Old Testament prophets as some would have you believe. This is not saying that the one new man, the body of Christ, has been built upon the, the uh, Old Testament prophets and their writings and the New Testament apostles. Okay? There's just a number of things that, that weigh against that. First is the order. They're introduced as apostles, then prophets. If it was old and then new, it would be a flipped order. But beyond that, notice in chapter 3 where... It, Paul says it was a mystery in other generations not made known. Not made known, meaning that it wasn't understood by, it wasn't known by the Old Testament prophets. So these belong, these men, these groups of men belong to the era of the New Testament. They are the apostles and prophets of the New Testament. And they are a small group of men consisting basically of the twelve of the twelve, plus Paul, as well as uh, New Testament prophets, such as, and I'll turn you over here to chapter 15 of Acts so you can just see this, uh, Judas and Silas are two illustrations of the New Testament prophet. Chapter 15 of Acts, Acts 15. Fifteen twenty-two, Acts fifteen twenty-two. This is the Jerusalem Council. 
It says, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. Drop down to verse 32. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. So Judas and Silas are New Testament prophets whose role is to encourage and strengthen the brethren, the church, by preaching to them a message of the Word of God. So it is these men, these apostles and prophets, who planted and instructed the early church, acting under the authority of Christ himself. So, Acts 2.42, right? Acts chapter 2, verse 42, after the church is born there at Pentecost, it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. It was the teaching of the apostles chosen by God, uh, by Christ, to be his, his emissaries here on earth, to act in his name, and to validate, by the way, his selection of them by their ability to perform signs and wonders. Paul speaks of that over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the signs of a true apostle, he says. So these are the ones who spoke in the name of Christ. <coughs> Pardon me, chapter 13 of Acts. Chapter 13 of Acts. Verse 1, now there were at Antioch in the church, there was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. What was the work that Christ had called Saul and Barnabas to? It was the work of planting churches, right? So they go out on their first church planting uh, missionary journey. And even you can see over in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul <clears throat> living with the understanding that what he was doing was acting as an emissary of Christ, planting the church. Chapter 10, 2 Corinthians Verses 13 and 14, he says, But we will not boast beyond our measure, <clears throat> but within the measure of the sphere which God has apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. <clears throat> for we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. Look down at verse uh, 2 of chapter 11. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. The Apostle Paul <clears throat> was sent out in order to plant churches and edify and encourage them in the faith. So, back to Ephesians. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, we do not have a written record of all of the words spoken by the apostles and prophets. We do not have such a thing. But what we do have 
is an accurate and faithful record of, of some of what they've said. And it, and it is the pages of the New Testament. Certainly, as you read through the New Testament, you realize that, that, uh, that Jesus must have said a whole lot more, and John himself says it, uh, than is recorded in the Gospels. And the apostles themselves, as they, as they preached and taught and planted churches, must have said a whole lot more than is recorded in the pages of the New Testament. So we do not have the full record of everything they've said, but what we have is uh, an accurate and faithful and uh, a record of some of what they've said, which forms this foundation. And a foundation once laid is never laid again in the building of a building. You put the foundation in the ground once. I remember years ago, I used to work downtown uh, I'm thinking about in Boston, so a lot of years ago. And I remember walking to work every day, and part of the walk, uh, I had to walk by this construction fence. And you've seen them downtown. It's a chain-link fence, and they put some sort of a, like a paneling on it so you can't see through it. And uh, you're constantly wondering what in the world's going on behind the fence. And uh, so I was really fortunate at one time because uh, somebody ripped the paneling, and uh, so you could peek in. And uh, I'm a grown man, right? I'm wearing a three-piece suit, and, <clears throat> and I'm stopping, and I'm peering through the, the chain link, but guess what? I'm not alone. There are, there are vice presidents uh, doing the same, a bunch of like little kids staring through the hole in the fence. And what we saw was this massive hole in the ground. They had dug down, I don't know how many stories, in order to reach bedrock. Why? Because they were going to lay in the foundation of a new building. And once that foundation is laid in, then the steel can begin to be assembled and the building starts to rise and pretty soon the construction fence is really not all that helpful because this thing has risen 40 stories up into the sky. That foundation, the point is, the foundation goes down once. Once laid, it is not laid again. And so these men, here's the point of this, verse 20, these men who are the foundation of the church, when they passed from the scene... When they moved into the pages of history, they were never replaced. They were never replaced. In other words, there are not apostles walking around today. And there are not prophets walking around today. They were foundational to the church. The church is now in the building stage. We are being builted. Wait, builted, that's in We are being built. That could be a word, but it's not. Um, stones, you know, put into place as this edifice continues to rise. You see that, by the way, in, um, in Revelation uh, 20. Well, a couple things. Let's do it this way. Uh, go back to the left. Look at 1 Corinthians. Where am I time-wise? Oh, yeah, I'm good. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want you to see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is talking about uh, witnesses of the resurrection, the resurrected Christ. And um, he gives a whole list of them. And what I want you to see here in verse 8, and he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. That, that expression, last of all, is very, very important because what it means is, is last in a sequence or series. Meaning there's not another that comes behind me. 
When Paul saw the resurrected Christ and was instructed by him, he was the last one to ever experience it. He is the last apostle, last of all, me. No more apostles beyond me. That's it. When I die, (laughs) you know, they're not making any more. John, now Revelation 22, John makes a declaration at the end of, of the book of Revelation with regard to the, the, the prophecies that were, were spoken and fundamental to the church. And he says in verse 18 of Revelation 22, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. In other words, John is declaring prophetic work done. Okay, Last chapter, last book, end of the story. How does it all turn out? Here it is for you, done. Puts the pen down, no one takes it up again. In other words that the canon of the New Testament, uh, the collection of the writings, the infallible, inerrant writings of the apostles, is done. Nothing more to be added. Now, back to Ephesians 3, or 2, rather. I want you to notice here in verse 20, the closeness of Christ to the foundation. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ, Jesus himself, being the cornerstone. Being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Christ's closeness to this whole process of the foundation here is laid out by him being called the cornerstone. The cornerstone. And um, it's, it's important to understand the purpose of a cornerstone in ancient architecture. Today, we build a, a building. They put in a cornerstone. It's just an ornamental little thing. They put a date on it. <clears throat> they might put a time capsule on it or something like that. In ancient architecture, the cornerstone was everything. If the cornerstone was not laid properly, the building would collapse. So it was the cornerstone. They were massive, and their purpose was to support the weight of the structure and to establish the squareness of it all and its, its uh, architectural dimensions were all driven off of the cornerstone. And so when Jesus here uh, is called by Paul the, uh, himself the cornerstone, then what, he is, what he is saying is that the exact dimensions of the building to which it will be built and the support for the entire structure is Christ himself. In other words, the church is given its boundaries, it's given its dimensions, it's given its support by Christ. By Christ. And we are stones, verse 21. In fact, picking up on the same kind of metaphor over in 1 Peter 2, Peter calls us living stones. But we are stones in this building, and notice that we are being fitted together. Again, perhaps a little under-translated from the Greek, the idea is precisely fitted together, okay? Not haphazardly. It's not like, you know, um, put a rock down and get a bunch of mortar and stick it in there and cover up the cracks. 
Okay, when they produced buildings, they cut their dimensions exactly, and they laid the stones in place, and you couldn't put a piece of paper between them. And so we are being precisely fitted into this building, not slapped together. In other words, when Jesus added you to the church, he added you precisely to the church. And he has made you precisely who you are. And I would go beyond that and say that that you are unique. You are a unique stone in the building. And that there are no two of us alike. And they, Jesus is continuing, verse 21, to add stones to this building as it's growing into a holy temple. Notice the present tense. It's growing. The building is growing. So what is the church? It's a building. It's made up of, of believers. They're drawn from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and they're being constructed by God. All right? Upon the teaching of Christ, given through the apostles and prophets, Christ himself aligning, supporting, and determining the ultimate boundary of this church, this building. And if that were not enough, notice Paul, the end of verse 21, he goes another step further. And he tells us that this building is a temple. This building is a temple, and it's actually a temple in which God himself dwells in the person of his spirit, verse 22. Now let that settle in a bit. We are being built together into a holy temple in which God himself dwells in the person of his spirit. The New Testament talks about the Spirit of God indwelling the believer, and that's a wonderful reality. But it talks more frequently about the Spirit inhabiting the church, dwelling in the church as the temple of God. In Exodus chapter 40, I'm not going to turn you there, but in Exodus 40, 34 to 35, It's recounted for us that upon the completion of Moses' tabernacle that the Shekinah glory of God came down and took up residence in the Holy of Holies. And it was so stunning that that Moses and, and everyone could not even look on it or enter in. And then you fast forward a thousand years or so, and in 1 Kings 8, And in verses 10 through 11, Solomon constructs his temple, and the same thing happens. The Shekinah glory of God descends on Solomon's temple and takes up residence inside the Holy of Holies with the same result. Look what Paul says here. Paul says that God's glory is now seen in the loving unity of the church. You get a hold of that? No more temples made with hands. No more spectacular architectural displays with gold and silver and jewels and and all of this that Solomon's temple was. Now, God himself, his glory through his spirit, descends and takes up residence in the church. 
This is the church universal, as it were, but I would be willing to argue that it goes beyond that. It is the church local. It is this temple of God here at 1330 West 15th Street. We are the temple of God. God is not just dwelling among us here. He is dwelling in us here. And the implications of that are absolutely profound. Beloved, God hates disunity in a local church. He hates it when churches are are divided and divisive and, and arguing and bickering and at one another's throats. Why? The reason he hates it is because it is a direct contradiction to the reality that this local church is the holy temple of God. So to have a church in which there is, you know, ethnic tension, in which people are, are thinking poorly and acting poorly towards one another based on where someone was born or their language or their food preference or their clothing style or or whatever, or some other human preference, or maybe sin that, that refuses to, you know, to be treated, and the, and the church is, is torn up with such things, God hates that. When the people of Israel no longer treated the temple of God as holy... The Spirit of God departed the temple. In Revelation, in the first couple of chapters, chapters one, basically chapters two and three, where Jesus speaks to the seven churches, right, of Asia, and he talks about those churches, that if they don't get their act together, right, he will remove the lampstand. The Spirit of God can depart. A church, too, if it refuses to be holy. So the implications of of the truth of this chapter are immense. It is going to drive what Paul has to say as he gets over into the end of chapter 4 and a lot in chapter 5 when he talks about living together in community as those that walk in the light, not in the darkness. Why? Because we are are the temple of God. All the former barriers have given way now by our union with Christ. We are the new humanity. And we live out that reality here at Foothill. And as we do it, God is glorified. May he strengthen us for the task. Let's pray. Our Father, what an incredibly profound truth that you, in the person of your Spirit, inhabit this church. That we are the temple of God. We are the place 
in which your glory is manifest. We are a people who are called to be holy. We are a priesthood whose purpose is to bring the truth to the world. And Father, we can't bring a truth that we're not ourselves acquainted with. And we can't credibly preach a message that we ourselves are not living. And so, Father, do your good work in us. How I thank you for the unity of Foothill Bible Church through the years. How I thank you, Father, for peace in the family. How I thank you for a willingness to to deal with sin and not cover it up or look the other way. How I thank you that people have submitted their own preferences to one to another in order that we could maintain unity. How I thank you that the scriptures are loved and treasured and, and believed and taught so that the foundation of the apostles and prophets could be laid very deep and strong around here. And Father, how I pray that in the days ahead, as the world is coming apart, that you would enable us to vividly display the love of Christ among us, that the world would see your glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.